Please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. As we continue in our series of sermons through the Gospel of Matthew, we come this morning to Matthew chapter 4, and we'll consider together verses 12 through 17. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Please follow along as I read. Now when he, that is Jesus, heard that John, that is John the Baptist, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come now before your word that we just sung about and extolled in song. Your word is your revelation to us. It is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We say that your word is perfect. It's good. It's right. How we need your word. And so we pray that you would come to us by your Spirit now through preaching, this means of grace. Show us your Word and manifest it before us that we might better understand what you have revealed about yourself and your Son, the Lord Jesus, and that we might better live in accord with your Word, that we might walk in the light and live lives while pleasing to you. Please bring us to your Word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I could not tell you how World War I started. I could not tell you how World War I started despite the fact that it's been explained to me uh, about a hundred times. And though you chuckle, I have news for you. You can't tell me how World War I started, though it's been explained to you many times. But I do know this. There was one event in particular that precipitated everything, and that was the assassination of the Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Uh, That one seemingly innocuous event set everything else in motion. Uh, You just get the sense that tensions were already building across Europe in the early 20th century, and these tensions were just waiting for some event, some trigger point to marshal the major European powers to war. It's like that event set everything else in motion. In Matthew's gospel, in his telling of the life and ministry and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, That's kind of how the arrest of John the Baptist is presented. Uh, John is arrested, and his arrest was like the starting gun at the start of a race, the starting gun of the Lord's public ministry. Once John is arrested, Jesus' public ministry begins. It's as if the forerunner, the last prophet that John was, has completed his ministry. He has successfully prepared the way for the Lord, and now it's as if Jesus takes over where John left off. To borrow language from uh, John's gospel in chapter 3, verse 30, John has decreased. Jesus now 
increases. Jesus takes center stage. And we shouldn't be surprised then that Jesus sort of begins precisely where John left off. Uh, So we have in uh, uh, Matthew 4, verse 17, Jesus' first public words. Chapter 3, he speaks to John the Baptist. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 that we looked at last time we were in this gospel together, uh, Jesus speaks to the devil. But now we have a summary, a record of his preaching. And we find in verse 17 of chapter 4, it's like he takes the baton from John, the same exact message that John was preaching, now Jesus will preach. Uh, In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, what is the summary that we have of John the Baptist preaching? He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' first public words, that summary of his preaching in chapter 4, verse 17, are those same words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He will now uh, take the torch. Now, even though he repeats these same words, this same message, he is now doing it in a new context. John is foretelling of the coming of Christ. Well, now he's come. Now he is entering his public ministry. The baptism has taken place. He's been anointed. Uh, Now the Son of God has come to introduce the kingdom, to preach the gospel, and eventually to go to the cross to die for the sins of his people. So it's a new context, but the same message. Repent, for now the kingdom of heaven dawns. The new age has come in Jesus Christ. Now, in order to set up the scene and to explain the significance of what is going on as Jesus now takes center stage in the gospel, Matthew is going to point us to one other Old Testament fulfillment. We've been seeing him do this throughout these first four chapters of his gospel. This is kind of the last sort of introduction to the public ministry of Jesus. And the text that Matthew points us to It's a quote from Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 2. I'll read it in our passage here in the context in Matthew 4. Look again at verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes from Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, by the way, we're approaching the Christmas season. That's one of those passages we often quote, verses 6 and 7 in particular. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, etc. Uh, this is how that chapter begins. Verse 15 of Matthew 4. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Here Matthew is linking... Jesus coming to Galilee, his arrival in Capernaum, with an ancient prophecy given some six or seven hundred years earlier about the dawning of light on people dwelling in deep darkness. Now, there are a couple of things Matthew is doing in these verses, the verses 12 through 16. Two things in particular. First, he is explaining Jesus' geographical movements. So, Jesus, we should not imagine just kind of going from place to place batted around by circumstances. He's deliberate in the arenas, the spheres in which he seeks to carry out his ministry at particular times. And so Matthew's explaining why it is that Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee, and we could say why he chooses to carry on his ministry in Galilee and not in Jerusalem. I think that's the subtext. I'll say more about that in a minute. But now there's a second thing that Matthew is doing, apart from explaining Jesus' geographical movements, The second thing he's doing by citing this text 
is to explain to us, to reveal to us something about the nature of the Lord's ministry. He's explaining his geography, but he's also explaining how should we view the ministry of the Messiah? How should we view the ministry of the Christ? And what we learn in this passage is that it's to be seen like the dawning of a great light on people dwelling in deep darkness. We are to see him as this light that is shining, this great light, this brilliant light that is manifesting itself, sort of overwhelming the dark world, this dark scene that men and women find themselves in. So I want those two ideas to regulate our consideration of this passage this morning. We're not going to get to verse 17, we're going to be verses 12 through 16. I want us to see what we learn here from Matthew about Jesus' movements, and secondly, about Jesus' ministry. Jesus' movements, geographically, but about the nature of Jesus' ministry. First of all, consider with me Jesus' movement. In the first instance, Matthew's simply trying to explain Jesus' geographical movements. Why did he go to Galilee? Why is it there? Why is that the hub of his ministry? Perhaps seeking to avoid the same fate as John the Baptist who was arrested in Judea, Jesus goes to Galilee and not to Jerusalem, and that's significant for a number of reasons. So you know Galilee is up here, and then the Judean region where Jerusalem is is down here. Some simple 101 sort of biblical geography there. Uh, Jerusalem, the Judean region, was the center of the religious life of the Jewish nation. Uh, so the temple was there. The key religious leaders were there. It represented the spiritual pulse of the nation. Uh, the most weighty royal and prophetic associations were with the city of Jerusalem. And many thought when Israel's Messiah would come, surely Jerusalem, the capital city, would be the central hub of His ministry. But that's not what we see here. And in the rest of Matthew's gospel, Galilee, the north country, is where His ministry will be centralized. Of course, He goes to Jerusalem to die. The great work He came to do will happen in Judea. But most of His ministry, most of His life, most of His preaching and His miracles, they're done in Galilee, in the north. It might be helpful at this point just to remind you, to remember what we know about Jesus' geographical movements from the gospel accounts. In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three gospel accounts, uh, they, we call them synoptic gospels because they're sin, with, optic, see, to see together, to see with. Uh, there's a lot of overlap between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a lot of shared material between those three gospels. John is a very unique gospel, not in that it gives to us a different Jesus, it just fills in a lot of information we don't have in the other Gospels. So in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the emphasis for uh, most of the first part of the books is on what Jesus does in Galilee. His preaching, His teaching, His miracles, various encounters with different ones in Galilee. And you sort of get the impression, if you're not reading carefully, that uh, uh, Jesus just eventually, at the end of His life, goes to Jerusalem for the final week uh, to go to the cross, to die, to rise again. But if we supplement the Synoptic Gospels with John's material, we come to appreciate that Jesus is actually moving between Galilee and Judea. There's an earlier kind of Judean ministry, then Jesus goes into Galilee, but He keeps coming back to Jerusalem for various festivals. So, for example, the Passover. We think Jesus was in Jerusalem in His adult public ministry for three, perhaps four uh, Passover events in Jerusalem. In John 7, for example, He's there for the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. So there's this movement back and forth. But still, Galilee is the main hub of His ministry. Now, if you put all that material together, the picture that we get from all four Gospels, you learn that Jesus did, in fact, minister in Judea very early in His ministry. There's an early Judean ministry before He, you know, after His baptism, before He goes up to Galilee, what's being recorded here in Matthew 4. 
But this initial ministry, by all the accounts in Judea, only presaged Jewish rejection of Jesus. So the response to Jesus in Jerusalem is universally hostile. But the Jews do not accept what he is bringing to them. And so he goes into Galilee, and we're sort of left wondering, well, will Galilee receive him any differently? Will they have a better response to Jesus? Now, what do we know about Galilee? That's some information about Judea, Jerusalem. What do we know about Galilee? Well, Galilee is in the north. It is far from the center of Jewish religion. It is uh, the backwater, if you will. Those in Jerusalem looked down on those from Galilee. Those in Galilee were in many ways a mixed people, uh, subject to Gentile influence, non-Jews. They were impure. They were uncouth. They were backwards. They were kind of like the country hicks uh, in those days. Their history was a source of shame and reproach. Uh, Their population had been decimated and replaced multiple times uh, through occupation by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and later the Romans. Uh, Because of their mixing with Gentiles, their religious pedigree was compromised. So Galileans were second-rate. They were second-class. And they were despised by those Jews of a purer breed, close to the geographical heart of Jewish religion in Jerusalem. Well, these are the ones, these Galileans... These are the ones Jesus goes to and where he will spend most of his time while on earth. These are the people among whom Jesus chooses to minister. They will enjoy the privilege of receiving his teaching and of experiencing his miracles and of receiving his ministry. I appreciate what Charles Spurgeon says here. He says, quote, he came unto his own and his own received him not, but whither shall he go? He will go to the outcasts, to that part of his country which was most neglected to that region where the population was mixed and degenerate so as to be called not Galilee of the Jews, but Galilee of the Gentiles, where from a distance from Jerusalem little was known of the worship of the temple, where error was rampant, where men's minds were enveloped in darkness and their hearts in the gloom of death shade. The loss of Nazareth shall be the gain of Galilee. Well, Jesus, the one who will be despised and rejected by men himself, deliberately goes to those who are despised and rejected. And I think there's something we're to see about the nature of Jesus' ministry or the character of His ministry. That Jesus will be a Savior for the last, the lost, and the least. His ministry will not occur in the halls of Jewish power or in the courts of Hebraic prestige. It will take place among the poor, the forgotten, the disenfranchised, the unlovely and the unwanted. It will take place in Galilee of the Gentiles, among people dwelling in deep darkness. Jesus will go to them. But it's, it's not just, we shouldn't imagine, that Jesus just preferred Galilee to Judea as His base of operation. He did. But that's not the only thing dictating His movements here. Matthew goes deeper than that. Jesus' movement to Galilee is not merely a function of preference or a matter of circumstance or some kind of response to an imminent threat. No, he reminds his readers uh, that this movement into Galilee has always been on the agenda for Israel's Messiah. All of this is happening in fulfillment of prophecy. A characteristic of Matthew, if you've been with us in this series of sermons, we see again and again he wants to connect Jesus to words that were long ago foretold about the coming Christ, about the Messiah. And he wants you, the reader, to see that Jesus is fulfilling all the expectations of the Old Testament. He is the one we have been waiting for, expecting, anticipating, and He's going to show us even now that Jesus' journey into Galilee, that trip is in fulfillment to what Isaiah had said 
earlier. So he does it again with reference to Jesus' geographical movements. Why does Jesus appear where he appears at this point in his ministry? Matthew understands this to be in fulfillment of Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, which are quoted for us in verses 15 and 16. Now, in that context in Isaiah, Isaiah has just announced the judgment of God that is coming upon the people. The last verse of Isaiah 8, verse 22, reads in this way, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into deep darkness. And that darkness in the context in Isaiah's prophecy refers to the Assyrian conquest, which occurred in 722 BC. The Assyrians crushed the northern kingdom And the first tribes they invaded were presumably Zebulun and Naphtali. Uh, So those were the northernmost tribes. Naphtali is at the tip of the northern kingdom. Then you go down through Naphtali into Zebulun. Uh, Those were the first tribes to be invaded. Those two tribes were the first to see this darkness and destruction that Isaiah is prophesying. But Isaiah 9, the next chapter, opens with good news. That though Israel be thrust into thick darkness, light is coming. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has shone. The new age of salvation is coming, and it must first come upon the region where darkness and judgment first came. So darkness overwhelms the people. But the first place, the first region, the first area that will see the light dawn is going to be those first tribes upon whom darkness fell. Those first covered in darkness will be the first who see the light. It will first dawn on those dwelling in the deepest recesses of darkness. And so the promise is made. One day, light will come. And Matthew is telling us now, this last word before Jesus takes center stage in his public ministry, begins his preaching. He says, the light has come in Jesus. He is the light. Galilee of the Gentiles waited for. He is the one the people of Naphtali and Zebulun were anticipating and looking for. The light has dawned. It is in this man, Jesus Christ. That is why Jesus went to Galilee, because he must shine as light on those poor people in fulfillment of the Scripture. So Matthew wants us to understand something of Jesus' movement in the first place. But now secondly, That's Jesus' movement. Why did he go to Galilee? It's in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Now, secondly, what does this passage reveal about the nature of Jesus' ministry? So, we've seen Jesus' movement. Now, consider with me, secondly, Jesus' ministry. Look again at verses 15 and 16. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. That for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has shone. Okay, kids, I got a question for you. Okay, eyes on your Bible. If this passage is being fulfilled in Jesus, where is Jesus in this passage? So Matthew quotes from Isaiah 9, which is in verses 15 to 16 of Matthew 4. Where's Jesus in those verses? I didn't see any references to the Messiah or the Christ or the servant of the Lord, or the Lord's anointed one? Where is Jesus in these verses? And the answer is that Jesus is the light. 
He is the light that dawns on the people dwelling in darkness. Jesus as the Messiah, it's revealed here, is coming into the world as light. So if you look at verse 16, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. That light is Jesus. As we see Jesus come now onto the scene, preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're to think, this is that light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. That light is the Lord Himself. Now, the association of the coming of the Messiah with the coming of light was a major theme in the Old Testament. Many passages foretold that the coming of the Christ, the coming of the Messiah, would be like the dawning of light. One of my favorite ways in which this imagery is used is in Malachi 4 verse 2, where Jesus is said to be the Son of Righteousness, the, the S-U-N, Son of Righteousness, who will dawn on the world with healing in its wings. Uh, that language is used in uh, what I regard as the greatest hymn of all time, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I'm thinking of going through that with my small group. Small group leaders, that would be great to do this Advent season, just go line by line through that song. Uh, and, and what's the line I'm thinking of? Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life for all He brings. Risen with healing in His wings, like the beams of the sun, being like wings that go forward to bring healing for the people. That imagery is applied to the Messiah. You have well-known passages like Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3, which we've had reason to quote several times over the summer and into the beginning of this series. Isaiah 60, verse 1 reads, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. This is foretelling the coming of the Christ. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Well, that's very similar to the passage that's being quoted by Matthew in our passage this morning. Again, Jesus is being associated with light. Well, in the New Testament, once we turn from Old Testament to New Testament, Jesus is in many places identified with light. That motif of light is huge in the New Testament very prominent with reference to Jesus, and especially prominent in the writing of the Apostle John. So we did a series of sermons through John's gospel. Again and again, Jesus is associated with light, and it's no different in John's epistles. For a second and third John, the imagery of light and that being associated with Christ Himself is a major factor. So you might think of the opening of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God, and I think it's verse 4 that then says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Light has come in the Word, who we read a few verses later, is made flesh, and is, of course, Jesus the Christ. Later on in John's Gospel, John 8, verse 12, Jesus makes that programmatic statement, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again and again, Jesus is identified with this light that was foretold in the Old Testament. It has now arrived and has come in Jesus. In our text, Matthew's doing the same thing. That great light that was going to come, it comes in Jesus, and He will shine on the world. He will rise and dawn on the world. But now this is the question I'm interested in. What are we to glean from that imagery? What does that imagery, that association of Jesus with coming light, what does that tell us about Jesus? What do we learn about His person, His being, His work, and His ministry 
from the association of Jesus with light. Lots of world religions talk about light. It's often a very vague and ethereal kind of concept. Almost every world religion has light as some kind of motif. Well, what would it have meant uh, to Jews to be anticipating the dawning of light? I don't think it was like a vague concept to them. What, would it mean, what does it mean to us to receive Jesus as the light of the world? What's being taught to us about the nature of His ministry in Him being associated with light? And I think almost always in the Bible, when light is associated with God, when light is associated with Christ, there's two ideas, at least two ideas, that are at the core of that imagery and that language. Almost universally true when the Lord is associated with light. Two things in particular. It is to associate Him, first of all, with truth, revelation, revelatory clarity. Light is truth. And secondly, light is righteousness, moral purity, holiness. I think it's these two ideas that are at the heart of the image being used here in Matthew chapter 4. I'd like us to consider these two ideas. In what sense, Jesus being associated with light, in what sense are we to think about Him? We're to think about Him in reference to truth dawning, revelation coming, and Him being the source of all moral purity. Consider these two ideas with me. First, truth, revelation. Jesus coming as light is the dawning of God's revelation to man. He comes to bring truth. Jesus coming into the world as light means Jesus comes to reveal the truth, to bring revelatory clarity to the world. Things can be hidden in darkness. There's no clarity in darkness. Things can't be seen for what they are in darkness. In darkness, there dwells confusion about what's real, about what's true. But then the light shines, and the matter is revealed, and we see with our eyes what is there. That's fundamental to how light works. Uh, kids, you might think of this by way of illustration. If you and I are sitting together in a pitch black room, and I hold up four fingers in front of you, but it's pitch black. And I say, how many fingers am I holding up? Well, you wouldn't know. You could guess, but you wouldn't know, right? Because you can't see. You, you can't see the matter before you. Darkness is shrouding what is right and what is true. You see, if we just turn the light on or open a window or something like that, you would see right away, right in front of you, that's four fingers in front of me. The truth has been revealed. The matter can be seen because light has dawned. Light has come, and now we can see what's right. We can see what's true. We're no longer living in confusion and in obscurity. We have light. We have revelation. We have clarity. Jesus coming as light, dawning as light, is the idea of Jesus coming as the revelation of the Father to bring light and revelation and truth. He comes to reveal the Father. He comes to manifest the light of the gospel. He comes to reveal the kingdom and the new age and its implications for us and His will for mankind. He comes as light. He dawns as God's revelation to man. But there's more to this first idea. Jesus doesn't just shine as the light of the world in order to reveal what is true. He does do that. But we're to understand He is the light Himself. And as the light, He is truth itself. Jesus will make this point numbers of times in His ministry. He Himself is the truth. He Himself is the light. He Himself is the way. He Himself is the revelation of the Father to the world. What's the truth being revealed in Jesus' ministry? Jesus is the truth, who He is what He does for sinful man, what He has come into the earth 
to do. And He is the truth by which all other truths are measured, seen, and understood. He doesn't just reveal the truth. He Himself is the truth. He is the disclosure from the Father, the revelation from the Father, the light that is dawning. This is something like the idea of that oft-quoted line from C.S. Lewis, a similar idea. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. See the idea? Jesus dawns like the sun, revealing all things, but He Himself is the great reality. He is the truth, the great revelation, the disclosure from God. I trust we all understand this. Light itself is an objective and irrefutable reality. Uh, Light is not something we deduce to be true or real. It's not the result of an argument. You don't infer light. You just see it. Light is either seen or it is not. Jesus is either seen or He is not. And if He really is the light, there's no argument to be made. They're just seeing to be done. If the light is shining, my friend, and you can't see the light, that doesn't deny that the light is shining. That just means you're blind. Light is not analyzed or examined or deduced. Light is seen or it is not. This is in part what Isaiah and Matthew convey when they speak of the Messiah coming into the world as light. He is God's revelation to man. Now truth and revelation is dawning on the world. We will understand this revelation from the Father. We'll understand who He is and who His Son is, and we'll understand what His will towards sinful man is. The light of the gospel shines in Jesus. The light of revealed truth shines in Jesus. God's will is made manifest in the person of Jesus, and this light will shine on those who dwelled in thick darkness. But there's a second idea. When we think of light in the Scriptures, and it's here in this idea of Christ coming as light, that's the idea of righteousness and moral purity. Jesus comes as light into the world to dawn on the world, to burst forth upon darkness as revelation and truth, but also as righteousness, moral purity. God is light, John tells us in 1 John, and in Him is no darkness at all. That's a commentary about moral perfection, moral purity. Jesus, the Messiah, the coming one, the anointed one as the light represents perfect moral purity. He himself is righteousness and perfect holiness. And as the light of the world, he shines with moral brightness and he illumines the path of righteousness and holiness and moral purity. And that moral purity that is shining, it calls sinners to repentance. It's not a coincidence that when light shines on those in deep darkness, the first call is to repent. It exposes darkness and sin and wickedness. Light by its very nature expels darkness. Where light is present, darkness cannot exist. That imagery of darkness has its own connotations as well. Darkness is where sin resides. Darkness carries with it the idea of wickedness and moral confusion and ignorance and perversity. I think this is most clearly captured in John 3, where now John is speaking of the coming of Christ And he says in verse 19, the light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Light shines with moral purity, with righteousness, with people in the dark recoil because they love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. It does not come to the light 
lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see the idea? Light dawns, light shines, light arises upon the dark world, and those living in sin who don't want to have their deeds exposed, they recoil from the light because it represents righteousness and moral brightness, and it exposes sin, and it calls men and women to repentance, and so they reject the light because light by its very nature exposes and expels darkness. We, we speak this way in our own time about darkness. In the darkness, I can nurse, I can cherish, I can treasure my sin, but in the light it's exposed. In darkness, sin and evil can hide, they can flourish, but when the light shines, moral impurity and wickedness recoil. Friends, darkness cannot exist where light is present. Wicked things that are being hidden in secret and cherished in dark corners, they will recoil from the light because light provides moral clarity. Light is the source of moral purity. Darkness is where sin dwells and grows like a cancer, but light is like a healing beam that shines on darkness, exposing the disease and driving it out. Right and wrong are made plain when the light shines. The dawning of light is the dawning of righteousness and moral purity, and it calls men and women to repentance. So back to Matthew 4 now. What's revealed to us about the nature of the Lord's ministry and associating Him with light that dawns on the world? I think the first and primary idea is that truth has come. Revelation has come. God has sent forth His light, His Son, who will shine on people dwelling in deep darkness that they might see the way, that they might know the truth, that they might understand who God is and what His will for man is. The gospel of the kingdom is being revealed in this light that shines upon the people dwelling in thick darkness. But there is this other idea of Jesus coming as the illuminating light of holiness and moral purity and righteousness, and it calls men and women to repentance. The light has dawned. And what do people dwelling in darkness do? What must they do? They must come to the light and repent, open their lives to the light, receive the healing, righteous, moral, pure light that comes in the person of Jesus. So now as we draw to a close in application, and as we move toward the Lord's table, what are we to do with this? What's the implication of this revelation about Jesus to us, that Jesus dawns on people dwelling in deep darkness? It's not complicated. It's quite plain. We're all to embrace the light. We're to come into the light. We're to receive Jesus as light. But more specifically, what would it mean for the Christian to receive and to have Jesus as their light. That's the goal. John 8 tells us that. Whoever follows the light of the world will not walk in darkness, but will have, present tense, the light of life. What does it mean as a Christian to have Jesus as light? What are the implications for us? I think if we trace out those two ideas of truth, revelation, and holiness, righteousness, moral purity, I think it will help us understand the implications. We're to have Jesus as light, receive Him as light. That means in the first instance, we should treasure Him as the truth. We should love Him as the truth. We should receive Him as the one who comes from God, the unique agent of divine revelation. And we should expect, if I'm to have Jesus as my light, as the light of life, He tells me what's true. I listen to Him. I receive Him. God's agent of life has dawned and He has spoken, and I receive the light. 
And I'm to walk in light. And part of what that means is I receive and embrace all that is true, all that he reveals about God to man. And I want to emphasize all and everything. Jesus comes to tell us the gospel. He comes to reveal that he is God's solution for man's sin problem. He comes to reveal uh, that all those who repent and turn from their sins, put their faith and trust in him, they will have their sins forgiven. We're to receive that. I trust you have received that if you're a Christian. Well, are there more implications? Of course there are. We have Jesus' teaching, his revelation from God on who we are to be as his disciples and how we're to live and how we're to walk. We receive the light. We receive the revelation, the truth. And so if Jesus reveals to us that God's will for man, for God's will for his disciples is that we love our enemies and pray for those who spitefully use us, we embrace the truth. The light is dawned. The light is shining. Revelation has come. And part of that revelation is I'm to love my enemies. I'm to pray for them. And so I receive the truth that the Lord has revealed. If, if, if part of what the shining light of truth reveals is that I'm to forgive those who sin against me lest I go to hell, I'm going to forgive those who sin against me. The Lord has said categorically, we're to forgive those who offend us, who hurt us, who sin against us. I can't decide I'm going to chuck that out. Well, I'll just pull that one out. I'll just rip that page out of my Bible. No, the light dawning is the dawning of truth, of revelation. And so whatever the light tells us, I'm meant to have them as the light of my life. And the light tells me I'm to forgive those who sin against me. If the Lord tells us we're to embrace suffering, we're to pray for those who persecute us, that we're to accept persecution for righteousness' sake, we accept persecution for righteousness' sake. To come into the light and to live with Jesus and to have Him as the light of life is to embrace all that He reveals all the truth that He imparts to man. But then there's this second idea. As Christians, how do we apply this? Again, take that idea of moral purity, of righteousness, of holiness. To walk in the light, to have Jesus as the light, to receive the dawning of light, is to mean I too am to walk in moral purity. I too am to walk in righteousness. This is at the heart of what the Apostle Paul says. In Ephesians 5, verse 8, he says, For at one time you were darkness, you Christians, you were darkness. He doesn't quote this passage, but he might say, You were the people dwelling in deep darkness. You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Here the shining is not just or only or even primarily about revelation and truth. It's about moral purity. It's about walking in righteousness. What do you think as Christians, God and His grace, light has dawned on me in the person of Jesus. And therefore, I don't walk in darkness. I don't live in darkness. I expose my evil deeds. I bring them before the Lord. And I can't live a double life or hide in secret crevices and dark corners. I must receive the purifying influence of the holy light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, where there is light, darkness cannot abide. I have no one in mind in particular, but I put it to your conscience. If you are nursing some hidden life of sin, clinging to some dark, shady corner in your life, you're a walking contradiction. 
Awake, O sleeper. Let the light of Christ shine on you. There's implications for how we're to live. As a Christian, I can't live a double life. I can't engage in the unfruitful works of darkness. I need to expose them. I need to bring them to Christ. I need to be purified. I need to be cleansed. And then I need to walk in the light as He is in the light, which means I walk in moral purity. I walk in uprightness. What does it mean for people who once dwelt in deep darkness to have the great light of Christ shining on them? We follow Him by walking in light, walking in moral purity and righteousness and holiness. But finally, what does this mean for the one here who's not a Christian. This prophecy given in B.C., 680, 700, that one day light would come on those people sitting in deep darkness, thick darkness. It would shine on them, dawn on them, bringing the hope of light. What does it mean, as Matthew quotes it now, to people who are living in darkness, sitting in sin? What's the implication for you. Well, the great announcement is that Jesus comes into the world as light for people just like yourself. He wants to shine on people living in sin, living in darkness, not principally that they may be judged, but that they may be saved. Jesus doesn't come into the world as light in order to condemn. He comes into the world as light so that people dwelling in darkness can be saved, so that they could be redeemed. That's why Jesus went to Galilee. Those people dwelling in thick darkness, even in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Salvation has come. The gospel of the kingdom has come. The Lord's Christ has come, and He announces, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Oh, light will do its work of condemnation and judgment, but in the first instance, what light is doing is offering hope, offering light, offering everlasting life for all those who turn from their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The promise is this, as John 12, 46 has it. Jesus says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. You hear this morning of darkness in your life? You have sin in your life? You, you have things, if they were brought into the light, would make you ashamed? Jesus came for you. Now, you may say, well, well, hold on now. You don't know how dark my darkness is. You don't know darkness until you hear my story. You understand what a noun is, right? Okay, so if, if I say Bill is a man, man is a noun, Okay, you know what an adjective is, right? If I say Bill is a gracious man, gracious is the adjective, right? And that tells you the character of the man. The adjective is doing that work. You get how that works, right? Did you notice the adjectives describing darkness in these passages? Jesus came as light for people dwelling in deep darkness, in thick darkness, that's an interesting adjective, thick darkness. If we're in a pitch black room, you ever been in a pitch, like totally pitch black? You know, darkness doesn't have a material quality, right? But, but it feels like that. It feels like someone just put a, a blanket over you. It's like thick darkness, you could feel it. Well, that's the imagery for those who are lost. They're in deep darkness and thick darkness, and it was precisely for them that Christ came. For you living in all kinds of sin, 
all kinds of wickedness, all kinds of rebellion, all kinds of things you've done and said and thought that you just think there's no way I can step into the light. It's for exactly those, the people who dwelt in deep darkness, in thick darkness that covered the people, on them light has dawned, light has shined. Unless you think that your sin is too great for light to shine on you, I remind you, John 1 verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Your sin is not more powerful than the grace of God. Your darkness is not so dark that the light of Christ can't shine upon it. I don't care how thick the darkness is. If you light a candle, the darkness is immediately dispelled. It just takes a little bit of light to overwhelm darkness. My friend, you're here this morning, you're hearing the words I'm preaching, and you recognize there's darkness and sin in my life. Come into the light. Have Jesus Christ, the light of life, the light of the world. He dawns as the son of righteousness with healing in his wings that you might be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, had you not sent forth your Son as the light of the world, all of us would be mired in, would be wallowing in thick darkness, deep darkness. But in the process of time, fullness of time, in human history, you sent forth your Son to dawn on this poor, dark world as light. We know, we recognize He's the only light any of us has. He's the only light this world has. We pray that we would all come into the light to embrace Him, to allow ourselves to be healed by Him. We pray that you would dispel our darkness and our sorrow and our night. We pray that you would give us the light of life. We pray that we would receive Him as your revelation, your disclosure of God to man, that we would receive Him as the Savior for sinners who can come out of darkness and embrace the righteous Savior who will lead us in paths of righteousness. Please, Lord, give us Jesus Christ as the light of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.